Okay, we're at <clears throat> the creation of man in the image of God, a new topic today. And the question is, uh, uh, why did God create us? As we've been going over a number of topics here, uh, we worked through the doctrine of the Word of God, then the doctrine of God, and then creation, and then talked about the creation of the spiritual world with angels, and we talked about Satan and demons, and that was what we finished that topic the last uh, Sunday we were together. So now we go on to human beings, or man, in the image of God. And uh, we'll, first, uh, we'll first talk about um, what it means to be created in the image of God. That'll be today. And then um, man as male and female. That is, how did God make us male and female, and what are the similarities and differences in us as men and women. That actually is a topic that I covered when I taught ethics, when we went through the ethics series. So some of you may find that a review if you want to skip next week. But every time I go through it, I found it helpful. So um, uh, I, I plan to do that. And uh, then what does it mean that we have body, soul, or soul and spirit? Uh, what, what are we made of? Where do our souls come from? That'll be the next uh, class, how, how are we physical and spiritual as well. And just a reminder for those of you who may have been just recently uh, into the class, the first Sunday of every month we don't meet because there's a kids stuff program in here. And so we're just meeting every Sunday except the first Sunday of the month. But that's the direction we're going. Well, what does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Uh, the pinnacle of God's creative activity. We had the six days of creation. And on the last day, there were a number of things that God created, but the last thing that he created, he said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. And the verse goes on. And so it was the last thing that God created, but really I think it's right to understand that sequence of creation as God creating more and more wonderful things as he went through the various the stars and the planet and the the earth and the and the sky and the um, plants and then the animal kingdom and now um, and now man in his image. So the pinnacle of God's creative activity, the pinnacle of God's creative activity is the creation of human beings, both male and female, to be more like Him than anything else that He made. More like Him even than angels and cherubim and seraphim and those. Wonderful heavenly creatures. Here's an outline that I'm working through. How, anybody need an outline? Still, hold up, hold your hand up and keep it up. And uh, and uh, Garth has some outlines here for you. Okay. Now, before we start talking about this topic, the question is: Should we use the word "man" to refer to the human race? Bible translations up until about. 1989, um, about 18 years ago, always said, uh, quoted God as saying, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female cre uh, created he them. That is, man to, to be a, a general term to summarize the whole human race, man being in the image of God. And then um, there were objections to that, and even in some Bible translations in the last 20 years, the New Revised Standard Version, the New Living Translation, the Today's New International Version, and perhaps some others, they changed it to God created humanity in his image, or God created people in his image, or something like that, objecting to the word man to 
refer to the human race. And so, uh, just a little detour here to say, I do think that the word man in English is still appropriate to refer to the human race. I don't mind, as I just did, calling the human race the human race, or calling it humanity, but I don't mind calling it people either, and I don't want to object to the word, I don't mind calling it man either, and I don't want to object to the word man, and the reason is that there seems to be scriptural precedent. For instance, in Genesis 5, 1 to 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and named them man when they were created, and named them man when they were created. Now, that word, the Hebrew word translated man there is Adam, and it's the same term used for the name of Adam and the same term used of man in distinction from woman in other parts of Genesis 1 to 5. And uh, I am dismayed to see that on your outline, do you see where it says point A2, the Hebrew word translated man? And then you've got a Hebrew word there. You see that? And then after that, in parentheses, it says Adam. And you see before the first letter, there's a little like backwards apostrophe. That's a mistake. <laughs> and I was just sitting here this morning dismayed that that represents ayin. Well, Bob, you know that. Uh, ayin, some of you know Hebrew in here. That's an ayin rather than an aleph. It should be an aleph. It should, it should go this way instead of this way. It should be curved the opposite way. So if you could correct that on your outline so nobody ever gets this and thinks I misspelled a Hebrew word, <laughs> the Hebrew letters are correct there, but the, the transliteration is not. All right, well, what is this word? That's Adam, and it sounds like the word Adam, and it is the word that the Bible used to refer to Adam, Adam and Eve. And it's also the word that is used oh, over a dozen times in Genesis 1 to 3 to refer to man in distinction from woman. So in Genesis 2.22, the rib that the Lord God had taken from the Adam, man, he made into a woman and brought her to the Adam, man. And Genesis 2.25, and the Adam and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here, that word is used to refer to man in distinction from woman. And then you come along to Genesis 5.2, and it says, on the day God created them, he named them Adam. Wait a minute, I thought that was what you were calling Adam. I thought that was what you were calling the man. Yes, that is. But it's also what God named the race in Genesis 5. Here, just a second. This verse, come on, here we go. Um, it's, it's this, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them, plural, named them man when they were created. So God puts the name Adam, man, on the whole human race. What is happening then is that God is giving the race a name that also can be used for a male human being, but then it can also be used for a human race. So my response is, we have a word like that in English. In English, the word man can refer to a man in distinction from a woman, or it can refer to the human race. God created man in his image, or uh, something like that. And so here again, uh, Genesis 3.12, the man said, the woman who gave me, there's man in distinction from woman. 
So, genesis, so number three here on the outline, the practice of using the same term to refer to male human beings and to the human race generally is a practice that originated with God himself, and we should not find that objectionable. In the Bible, naming is important. God changed Abram's name to Abraham, changed Sarai's name to Sarah, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Name is important in the Bible. It has to do with representing who the person or thing is. And, and so uh, when God gives the human race a man that has a, a, a hint of male uh, overtone to it, I think we shouldn't object to it. In Genesis 5-2 describes God's activity of describing a name that would apply to the human race as a whole. That's the Genesis 5 verse that I looked at. And so the fact that God did not choose to call the human race woman, but man probably has some significance for understanding God's original plan for men and women. The Bible doesn't say, so God created woman in his own image, and God created male and female and named them woman when they were created. It, 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 it could have said that, but it didn't say that. And I think that, that, it, that it hints, it just hints at male leadership in the home. Um, it just hints at that. Um, and it's sort of parallel to a woman taking her husband's last name when they become married. It, uh, it hints at uh, um, an understanding of male leadership in the family. And I think that's appropriate, though we're equal in the image of God. Now someone might say, and I have had people argue with me about this, someone might say, wait a minute, Wayne, you don't use the word man that way in English anymore. Why, my, my, my English department in the university that I attended wouldn't let me do that, someone might say. It's, it's ruled out. But actually, um, as I go through, just or the question of what's acceptable in English is what you find when you read English. And if you read the newspaper, you see things like this. Um, Senator Barack Obama September 2006 was speaking of the black church's historical struggles for freedom and the rights of man. That's using man and mean, mean the human race. Or uh, liberal Democratic Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank, um, uh, he said that the agricultural aid program being considered by Congress violates every principle of free market economics known to man, and two or three not yet discovered, uh, but known to man. I mean, that's the human race, and that's, that's not a, I mean, that's a very liberal congressman just using that, May 2006. Time magazine cover, the untold saga of early man in America, March 2006, early man in America. Or there was another Time magazine cover, the evolution of man, big red letters. That means the human race. Or... Um, <clears throat> let's see, Arizona Republic, story about mountain lions in California, quoting the New York Times. It's a battle over Silicon's Valley, Silicon Valley's mountain lions is more than a matter of man versus nature. That's August 2005, or Wall Street Journal, a contrast between man and machine, April 2005. So ordinary secular press and, uh, and congressmen and senators and everybody else still use the word man to refer to the human race. Certain English professors in universities try to prohibit that usage, but it hasn't. But they haven't succeeded. And I don't think that we should give in and change Bible translations 
to move to a word that doesn't have any male hints to it or male overtones to it, so I'm still using the word man to refer to the human race. Do I mind using the word human race to refer to the human race? No, of course not. That's perfectly good English, too. But I just don't want to rule out uh, that one use. Okay, that's, that's that diversion. Excuse me for that, but I thought it might be of interest. Why was man created? God did not need to create man, yet he created us for his own glory. For his own glory. What does that mean? Well, for his honor, for his praise, that people should delight in him and rejoice in him and praise him and give him glory. He wants us to do that. Now, <clears throat> God didn't, <clears throat> he didn't need to create us because in the Trinity, eternally, there was love and fellowship among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And so John 17, 5, Jesus says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus had glory with the Father before the creation of the world. And in John 17, 24, he speaks up. Excuse me. In John 17, 24, he speaks of um, the love the Father had for him <clears throat> before the foundation of the world. So for all eternity, there has been relationship and, uh, and uh, fellowship among the members of the Trinity. So God didn't need to create us, but God did something that he didn't have to do because he wanted to. Do you ever do something you don't have to do just because you want to do it, because it gives you pleasure? Some of you may paint a painting. Some of you may compose some music. Some of you may revise Einstein's theory of relativity, <laughs> Mike, <laughs> just because you enjoy doing it. Some, uh, some of you may plant uh, a garden or repair your, or do some modification to your pickup. I mean, there are, there, we just, we do a lot of things, cook a meal that has, is creative, or we, we, do, we do a lot of things that, uh, we just do because we enjoy them. And in fact, I think when we do that, we're reflecting something of what God is like when he did something, he created things that gave him pleasure. I think even little children like to do that, like to build with blocks or Legos. They like to create something. Hmm? So, Or you've got some, something broken at home, you like to tinker with it and fix it because you're inventing a little solution to it, like I'm trying to do to the gate latch on my, uh, in, in our yard. Well, it, it, there's kind of a pleasure in doing that. We do something that's creative. Oh, playing golf. You don't have to, but it's fun. <laughs> no. um, so, uh, so we can do things that give us pleasure, and God did something to give him pleasure. He created the universe, and he created us. And he created us so that we would give him glory. And so, as Isaiah 7, 43, 7 says, talks about his sons and daughters whom he will bring from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. That's you. He created you for his glory. He just as a, a child wants to build something out of Lego and then look at it and say, wow, 
was out of her need. So God created you so he could look at you and say, wow, that's neat. That's wonderful. I enjoy that. I take delight in that person that I made in my image. So it's important then that we understand how to glorify God, how to fulfill the purpose for which he made us. Ephesians 1, 11 to 12, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. That, I think, means that our whole life might be for the praise of God's glory, for, for his excellence, for his honor. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I think Paul's just looking at ordinary events of life and saying, would you glorify God in all of these things? Now, if we had time, and we did this a little bit when we talked about the attributes of God, but if we had time, we'd go through different attributes of God and show how he wants us to reflect his character in what we do. Uh, Julie Bennett going to Chad. Going to learn a language probably and begin, begin to translate the Bible into a language of a people group that doesn't have the Bible in their own language. Well, there Julie is reflecting God's God's knowledge, because God knows that language, reflecting God's ability to speak and communicate and to do it in a way that, that glorifies God. Um, when we act with kindness toward other people, well, God is kind. Act with love, God is, God is love. When we act with justice and fairness, when I grade papers fairly and grade exams fairly, <clears throat> I hope I'm reflecting God's justice. <clears throat> and <clears throat> if I'm not fair in how I grade papers, then students might say, that's not fair, <laughs> or that's not right. Hey, how did, why did you mark that one wrong? And last week, I had I had an answer, I had run wrong on the answer key. And so students were quite quick to point out that I needed to be fair in changing that, uh, how that was marked wrong on the answer key. So uh, we, we demonstrate fairness and we reflect God's character. Well, God wants to look at us throughout our days and say, as he, as he sees, um, John, I get to pick on you because you're in the front row all the time. But, but he sees John, he says, wow, there's a demonstration of skill and wisdom. I made him that way. There's a demonstration of knowledge. I made him that way. There's a demonstration of, of strength when you're building something, because uh, I made John that way. There's a demonstration of truthfulness when he tells the truth. And God delights in all that when he sees all of his character represented in us. That glorifies him. And then in our hearts, when we say, thank you, Lord, for being able to walk out in the beautiful sunshine, and that glorifies him because we're honoring him. So whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. We do hearts with hearts thankful to God for what we are doing. <clears throat> um, so then what is our purpose in life? Well, our purpose in life, God created us to glorify him, and so doing, also to fully enjoy God and take delight in him. This is, this is a wonderful thing. I, I don't know, I don't, I don't think um, trees and plants have the capacity to enjoy God. Um, uh, I don't think they have the brain to be able to enjoy things. <clears throat> they glorify God sort of without knowing it. 
and stars and planets the same. And I don't know if there's any awareness of God on the part of animals or not. Doubt it. <clears throat> sure, not, sure not very significant if it is. But we, well, they glorify God just by the excellence of their creation. We can glorify God and enjoy doing it. And he's created us such a way that we do enjoy it when we know we are acting in a way for which we were created. And so that's a, a wonderful benefit. I don't suppose God had to make us that way. He didn't have to set up the universe so we would enjoy glorifying him, but he did. And there is a tremendous benefit. I think ultimately the reason we enjoy God is that he is enjoyable. That is, he is the sum of all desirable qualities. And so when we think about him, we're happy. We say, yes, that's the way the universe ought to be, and that's the way God is, and it's right that he is that way. So, um, so, so now God has made us, so we take delight in what we should take delight in, and that is the excellence of his character. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That is, I think, Jesus is saying that the, the uh, in relationship with God that comes through salvation in Christ, that that new life is an abundant life, a rich and full and meaningful and joy-filled life. We enjoy God forever. Uh, Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life, says David. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God calls us into fellowship with himself, and when he does that, he calls us into a, a realm of joy and pleasure forever in his presence. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. This idea of, of just a place of delight and joy and wonder. My soul longs, yea, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Why? Because that's where God is present most intensely. That's where he most fully makes his presence known. And that's where there is fullness of joy, when we are in the presence of God and in fellowship with him. So um, now when I say that, there's a little hint of objection that perhaps is in the back of some people's minds. They think, well, wait a minute. God seeks glory for himself. He, he calls us to glorify him. He wants us to honor and praise him. Well, haven't I always been taught that it's wrong to seek credit for yourself and seek glory for yourself? So someone might say, wait a minute. Is it wrong for God to seek glory for himself? Because it seems to be wrong for human beings to seek glory for themselves. But I think we have to understand why it is wrong for us to just take glory and praise for ourselves. It's wrong for us because when we do so, we're robbing glory from God. That is, everything we have, uh, we've been given from him. And so you have great athletic ability. Well, where did you get that? You got it from God who made you that way. You have great financial ability and business management. Where did you get that? You got it from God. You have great social skills, interpersonal skills. Where did you get that? You got it from God. Well, he created you. And so in that way, if we just say, oh, how great I am, how wonderful I am, we're taking all glory to ourselves, and it's robbing it from God. And the, I didn't put the verse up here, but in Acts 12, there's this story where King Herod came before the people of Tyre on an appointed day, 
and he made a speech and they wanted to flatter him and they cried out, oh, it's the voice of a God and not of a man. Your speech is so wonderful. And of course, he delighted in that. And then it says, and immediately an angel of God smote him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. And uh, the Jewish historian Josephus records in more detail the agonizing death that Herod experienced for not giving God the glory. On the other hand, by contrast, uh, John in the book of Revelation, Peter at place at Acts, someone falls down starts to worship, or uh, John falls down starts to worship the angel, says, no, don't do that, worship God. And uh, these uh, non-Christians, uh, Peter's out preaching the gospel, and they think he's so wonderful, or maybe it's Paul, I've forgotten, but they think he's so wonderful, and they start to worship him, and they say, wait a minute, no, don't do that, uh, give worship to God. And so, um, yeah, it's Cornelius in, uh, when Peter comes to his household in Acts 10. And so um, it's wrong for us to rob glory from God, but it's not wrong for God because he deserves all glory. Who's he robbing it from? He's not robbing it from anybody. He's not robbing it from anybody who deserves it more. And so, the, the, so it is right to give glory to him. In fact, the book of Revelation says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by, excuse me, by your will they existed and were created. That is, since you created all things, Lord, you are worthy to receive glory from those things. It's right that God receive glory for himself. In fact, when we begin to appreciate the nature of God as infinitely perfect, as the creator who deserves all praise, then our hearts really won't be at rest until we give him glory with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. In fact, if you would think for a minute, what would it be like? What would it be like if you couldn't praise God? If he said, no, I won't let you praise me. What, Ruth? I just can't even imagine. <laughs> you can't imagine. It'd be, it'd be impossible, wouldn't it? Your heart would cry out, Lord, I want to praise you. I have to. I have to worship you. Georgianne, you're sensing that too. You have to. There's something in us. This is right. This is what we're made for. We have to do this. As much as we have to breathe. When we know who God is, we just have to say, Lord, you are worthy to receive all glory and all honor. So that's what our life should be. Our life should be just filled with that realization. And when we stop and we look at God's word and we think about it, then we say, yes, that's right. And that's what we should do. So now, now this ties into this idea of man <clears throat> being created in the image of God. The fact that man is in the image of God means, and here's I'm going to give a definition. It means that man is like God, and represents God. And the reason I say that is that that's the meaning of the Hebrew words for image, tselem, and likeness, demuth. <clears throat> I did a word study once and took those Hebrew words and traced them other places in the Old Testament. And the words image and likeness are very much in similar in usage to the meaning of our words, image and likeness. And uh, uh, sometimes an image is like a, a scale model or a little replica of something. 
um, like uh, one of the kings of Israel took a trip to another country and he saw an altar there he liked. So he had one of his artists make an image of it or a model or a likeness of it. Uh, it's, uh, it's like a scale model. It looks like the real thing. It's not the real thing, but it's a... And uh, there are other places where it talks about images of, of frogs or something like that. It's a little model, replica of it. Um, and so there's a large debate in uh, theology books about what it means to be in the image of God. Is it our moral sense, our spiritual ability, our intellectual ability, um, our relational ability? Is it something we are, something we do? Is it our dominion over creation? What is it? And, and my answer to all that is this, is, this is sort of a useless debate. Excuse me. But if it just means we're like God and we represent God, then every way which we're like God, all of the above, multiple choice, yeah, it's A, B, C, D, E, and F. All the ways in which we are like God are ways in which we find that we are in the image of God. So God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth. Um, well, that's one way in which we're like God. God rules over the universe. He gives us stewardship to rule over the, uh, over the earth uh, under his authority. But here's a, one example that I, I found that uh, talks about another use of image and likeness, and it gives us a little understanding of the word image and likeness. <clears throat> when Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, Demuth, after his image, uh, and there's the word Selim in the middle of that, uh, according to his image, and named him Seth. Whoa! God created us in his image and likeness. Adam had a son in his image and likeness. Well, now, how was Seth like Adam? You have to just guess, because it doesn't tell you in the Bible. But how would, how, how would Seth have been like Adam? Oh, he's got his DNA, all right. <laughs> okay, what else? What? Hmm? He probably looked like him, all right. How else? He could think, yeah. Adam could think. Seth could think. Adam was a male. Seth was a male. Two legs, two arms. So he had some physical abilities, some skills. He could walk, he could run. Could learn things. I mean, there were lots of ways. We can't. Do you have the same color hair? We don't know. Do you have the same color eyes? We don't know. But, but did he like the same kinds of things? Well, some, some not. You don't know. But, but he was like him. It doesn't specify. But he was like him in a lot of ways. Many abilities. And so I think we're getting a hint here that says to be in God's image and likeness is to be like God. Not the same as God. Seth wasn't the same as Adam. He was different. And, of course, we're not nearly as excellent as God in all his infinite perfections, but, but we're like him. And so in the same way, we are like God in many ways. And now, when I look at the fact that angels aren't in the image of God, elephants and giraffes and hippopotamuses aren't in the image of God, chimpanzees and dolphins aren't in the image of God, stars, plants, planets, uh, and plants aren't in the image of God, it, we're the only part of creation that's in the image of God. So I'm saying, well, wait a minute, here's another way we can tell what the image of God means. How are we better than the rest of creation? What, what, what qualities do we have that set us apart, that show that this is 
appropriate for us to be called in the image of God because we're like God more than the rest of the creation. Well, it seems then that the best way to understand what it means that we're in the image and likeness of God is to find from the rest of Scripture and from our own understanding of ourselves more specific ways in which we are like God and which we are greater than the rest of creation. The more we know about God, the more we know about ourselves as human beings, the more similarities we'll recognize and the more fully we'll understand what Scripture means when it says that we are in the image of God. So now I want to... Uh, I want to go through what happens to God's image with sin, and then we'll talk about specific ways that we're in the image of God. Um, and just, just back up here a minute. I think when we begin to think about this, we'll find that God's made us so that there's spontaneous delight in being like God more and more as well that it is, he's, he's made us to, be, to enjoy being like him. But we'll, we'll come to that in a few minutes. In the fall, what happens with sin? Do we lose all of God's image? Well, it's distorted but not lost because the fall, that is sin, was in Genesis 3. But in Genesis 9, God says, whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. So after sin, we're still in his image. James 3.9, people who are made in the likeness of God. And so image, likeness, those two words, similar concepts. And still, we're said to be in the image of God. But after the fall, then we're like God, but his image is distorted in us. How are we less like God by sin in the world? Hmm? We're sinners, yeah, specifics. How do we? Not pure? Not Okay, human beings lie, but God tells the truth. So when we lie, we're, the image is distorted, all right? We die. God is eternal. All right? So the image is distorted. We age. Um, we're selfish instead of loving. Okay? We can be mean and cruel and harmful rather than loving. Uh, we can be unfair rather than reflecting God's justice. So there are a lot of ways in which our image is distorted. Um, now, God, all his knowledge is perfect and true. But do we ever believe false things? Yeah, see, so then there's an image distorted in our thinking in our speech, etc. So, um, uh, after the fall, we're like God, but his image is distorted. So, human beings are helpful, but also an inadequate picture of God's character. I want to say that, that uh, what, how do I know what God is like? Well, he's something like Phil and Ruth and Garth here sitting in the front, but he's different than that. And so, if all I knew, if I said God is exactly like Phil or Ruth, well, Wait a minute, that wouldn't be adequate because we're, we're, not, we're not exactly like him. Uh, but, but there's something. See, I see, I can, I can talk to, to Ruth or to Phil and say, oh, these people are intelligent, they have a moral sense, they, um, they, have, they represent truthfulness and love and kindness and justice, and I see, I see something of God, but it's not perfect. No comments, Garth. Through redemption in Christ, we experience a progressive recovering of more of God's image. So here's what happens. At the fall, the image is distorted but not lost. And then we become believers and we start growing into more and more likeness to the image of God. So Colossians 3.10, you put on, you speak the truth to one another. 
We've put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Our minds begin to change on things. We begin to learn truth from God's word. And then our minds begin to reflect more of God's thoughts. And so our image is being renewed. We're changed into more of God's likeness in his thinking and then our lives and character. In fact, it says he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. Ultimately, we're going to be exactly like Christ. And so we get to be more and more like him progressively through our lives. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So progressive renewal in the image of God. And then at Christ's return, we'll experience the complete restoration of God's image. So 1 Corinthians 15.49 says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man in heaven. Um, and, uh, and 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says Christ is the image of God. He perfectly reflected the character of God. And we will have that morally uh, in our lives uh, at Christ's return. Uh, in fact, 1 John 3, 2, when he appears, we shall be like him. We'll never be infinite in power. We'll never be infinite in knowledge. But we will be morally pure and righteous and uh, a much greater reflection of God's character. So now, in terms of practical application, we can think through, give me some specifics. What does it mean that we are, give me some specific ways in which we are in the image of God. Well, we're like God in a number of aspects. In a moral sense, more than the animal kingdom, we are morally accountable before God. He holds us accountable for, um, for how we act. Number two, we have an inner sense of right and wrong that sets us apart from animals. Animals respond from fear of punishment or hope of reward. They can be conditioned. But we have a sense. We can, we can read a story in a newspaper and say, that's not right. That shouldn't happen. That's not just. Or we can watch a basketball game on TV and say, that was a good call. Even though it went against my team, it was fair. We have a sense of rightness. And um, in, in business dealings, in buying and selling with people, you, you like it when people are fair and they keep your, you have a sense of, of, of justice. And children, I mean, children have this from a very early age. That's not fair, right? Um, there's a sense of things should be right and just and fair. And I think that's a God-given sense. Uh, and we can reflect God's likeness through righteous behavior, though by contrast we show unlikeness to God and we sin. And so all of our moral, ethical life is a, a way of being like God. It sets us apart from the animal kingdom, a highly developed sense of moral right and wrong and a sense of justice. In a spiritual sense, we have immaterial spirits, and we can act in significant ways in the realm of the in the invisible spiritual realm. We worship our, not only our vocal cords are singing to God, but our spirits worship God, our spirit or soul, uh, whatever you want to call it. And so we have a spiritual life, and it enables us to relate to God as as persons. It enables us to pray, to praise God, and to hear Him speaking His words to us in our spirit. We can sense the guidance of the Holy Spirit from time to time. We are spiritual beings, uh, and we have immortality. Even when our bodies die, our spirits remain alive and go into the presence of God. So 
um, that is a, a wonderful way in which we are like God, who is spirit. Mental aspects. Oh, I didn't. That, that was spiritual aspect. Then mental aspects. We can think logically and with reason, and we can problem solve. And it sets us apart from the animals. There's a lot of history of theology in different Lutheran theology or Catholic theology or Reformed theology. But there's no, among dogs, there's no history of canine theology. You know, I was driving down, it was just last week, I was driving on Thomas Road and I looked at the bumper sticker on the car next to me and it said, my dog is an honor student at Canine Country Club. And I thought, oh. well, I'm glad, but I sure wouldn't put a bumper sticker on my car. I hope that wasn't, maybe that was one of you. I don't know if you like your dog, okay. But, oh well. Uh, and, and you know, there's some, there's some we, we, lo we like it when we have some intelligence indicated among the animal kingdom. And our cat, Obadiah, has been really taking care of Margaret. Uh, just kind of following her around, just kind of being present. I'm thankful for that. And dogs can show a great degree of intelligence, and, and they're fun. And so there's a faint, faint reflection of God's knowledge, even in the in the animal kingdom. I'm not saying there's no trace of that, but it's just a huge difference between the animal kingdom and us, and uh, the intelligence that we are able to exercise. Um, in solving complex problems, playing games, just with, with thinking and strategy. We can use complex abstract language, which is an unbelievably difficult task, but children do it naturally. They grow up in whatever country they grow up. They can speak English if they grow up here. They grow up speaking Chinese if they grow up in China, and they grow up speaking French if they grow up in France. And it's just, everybody does it. It's easy. I remember a Greek professor saying, you can learn this. Greek children learn it every day. <laughs> it's very easy. So, um, but that's a, that, and you can say, a, a father can say to a four-year-old son, which I, when I was thinking about this a long time ago when my son was four, I could say, go to my workbench in the basement and get the big red screwdriver. And even though he had never seen that big red screwdriver before, he knew big, he knew red, he knew screwdriver, he knew workbench, and he knew basement. And a four-year-old could go do that. No animal could ever do that. An animal can be trained to fetch something he's been trained to fetch before, but he can't ever understand, go get something he's never seen before. And, or I could say, go get the, big, the small brown bucket that's underneath the workbench, and he could do that. And an eight-year-old can send a letter to her grandparents talking about her visit to the zoo. And uh, any eight-year-old who's been through school can do that, but no chimpanzee in the world could ever do that. And children can go to any foreign, lang any foreign country and learn any foreign language. And Julie's going to France because she's going to learn French, and, and, the, and the Bachelmans are learning Arabic, and, and we can do that, but no animal could ever do that. It's amazing ability that comes from the fact that God speaks. And he uses language. And he made us with that amazing gift that enables us to communicate. And to write. I mean, dogs, 
they can't look at this and say our use of complex abstract language sets us far apart from the animals and then they say woof woof I'm sorry I object to that no animal in the world can read that sentence but you can all read it it's just an amazing ability that shows greater likeness to God um, we have an awareness of the distant future in people's hearts there is a sense that that eternity is is coming and there's a there's an instinctive sense just generally among peoples and cultures and they invent their own religions because they sense there's something later God has put eternity in man's heart says Ecclesiastes 3:11 and so we can plan out into the future for years in advance and then plan for our life in heaven animals can't do that we're creative in areas such as art and music and literature and scientific and technological inventiveness um, uh, and I think our creativity is a wonderful part of um, being made in the image of God and again you see it in children they can do play acting or make up skits and then act out something they've done and um, they have imaginations and creativity that way that's a wonderful ability to create or what else do I have here cooking a meal decorating a home planting a garden just fixing something that isn't working correctly you need some inventiveness this is human creativity and and it's it's um, beavers build the same kind of dams that they've built for thousands of years robins build the same kinds of nests that they have for thousands of years and so all members of the animal kingdom, they just have these instinctive things. They're wonderful. They're God-given abilities that are given to them. But we can paint a room a different color and move the television to a different place and tear it on a wall and put something else in it and put a window where it wasn't. I mean, we can, just, we can just invent all sorts of different things and we just do this thinking nothing of it. But it's a, it's a God-given creativity that's far above the animal kingdom. In the area of emotions, oh, I'm at the end of the time. Now I have a problem. I got about 10 minutes left, and I can't finish, but it's not a whole lesson for next week. Well, you know what? I'm just going to say our physical aspects, eyes. Why did God give us eyes? Do you think God sees? See, God doesn't have a physical body, but does he see? So he let us see. God doesn't have physical ears, but does he hear? So see, even, even our physical bodies have abilities that reflect some God-likeness, and so they're wonderful in that way. Well... I mean, the point of all this is that we are bearers of the image of God. He made us just to be in such a wonderful way to be like him. And he looks at us and says, that's wonderful. I take to, as long as we are obeying him and not sinning against him and violating, he looks at us and takes delight in his creation. And that's what he wants to do with us as we just we become like him in different ways. And then he takes joy in us. Number six, as bearers of God's image, we have great dignity. We're more like God than any other created thing. And this gives a foundation for great value to human beings. 
It has great implications for our contrast toward others. And even people who are mentally ill or elderly or unborn children, they, they don't reflect fully all these characteristics, even though we don't either, but they have the status of being in the image of God. And that gives the foundation for our treating, our treating human beings with great respect. We are not just animals or more complex animals. We're human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, made in the image of God. And that gives the basis for our treating one another with honor and dignity and respect. Now, look, I'm two minutes over, but I heard a rumor that the church service went a little over. Do you just have one or two questions here, and then I'm going to be done with this outline? Probably we should, probably we should get out of here, shouldn't we? Ask it. Uh, we'll do Phil Marsh one question, and then. Yeah. In English, image and likeness so yeah. often uh, refers to uh, a physical appearance. Yes. Yeah, as it looks well. like. Yeah. Right. Okay, so is in the Hebrew, can you can you expand a little bit about okay, if if God does not have form and yet right. and yet Christ then, Christ did as yeah. man. So. so then that makes me say, in what other ways are we like God? It's not just it's not physical. I we've got a physical body. So Christ did take on a physical body, that's true. Yeah. And the body is see, and our body is uniquely designed to reflect God's image in a lot of ways. We can speak, we can hear, we can think, we can, uh, you know, we can do things and create. And so God doesn't have a physical body, but he made our body to have a lot of abilities to show his character. So good, good question. Anything else? Okay, Mike. Um, when Christ was asked, I'm sorry. When Christ was asked whether to pay taxes to Caesar yeah. or not to, yeah. He pointed out the image of Caesar yes, was on the another coin. another instance, same word. And again, we oftentimes look at that passage and suggest if the image of Caesar was on the coin and the coin belonged to Caesar, yeah. if the image of God is on man, Good. does man indeed belong to God? Absolutely. Yeah. Good. Hadn't thought of it, but yes, definitely, Mike. Thank you. Good. Let's close with that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you oh, for the wonderful way you made us. I just, I just stand here, Lord, thinking, here I am, like you. And all of us are like you. And you want us to just reflect so much of your excellence in all that we do and say. And then, Lord, you take delight, you take pleasure in seeing us being like you. And what, what dignity, what what joy, what sense of purpose and fulfillment that gives to us. And so we praise you, Lord. Lord, I pray that out of this you would give us a deep desire to honor one another because every person in this room is more like you than anything else in creation just because we are human beings made in your image. Lord, help us to honor and be thankful for and value one another and then Lord, help us to enjoy seeing your character reflected in day-to-day -day activities uh, from other people around us, and then give thanks to you. Amen.